Isaiah 9, 2 through 7. The people who have walked in darkness have seen a great light. Those who dwelt in a land of deep darkness, darkness, on them has light shone. You have multiplied the nation. You have increased its joy. They rejoice before you as with joy at the harvest, as they are glad when they divide the spoil. For the yoke of his burden and the staff of his shoulder, the rod of his oppressor, you have broken as on the day of Midian. For every boot of the tramping warrior in the battle tumult and every garment rolled in blood will be burned as fuel for the fire. For to us a child is born, to us a son is given, and the government shall be upon his shoulder, and his name shall be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace. Of the increase of his government and of peace there will be no end on the throne of David and over his kingdom, to establish it and to uphold it with justice and with righteousness from this time forth and forevermore. The zeal of the Lord of hosts will do this. Uh, Redeemer was very instrumental in sending us out to plant uh, Mission Church. Uh, the Budils, who are a part of your church family, were helpful in that as well for about an 18-month to, to two-year period. And... Uh, it's a privilege to be here on Mission Church's behalf, uh, sending greetings from them. Uh, so today, what we're going to do is spend a little bit of time with Jesus as our Prince of Peace, okay? So if you haven't already, you'll want to tap or turn Book of Isaiah chapter 9 uh, and verse 6 uh, is where we're going to be. Um, in Isaiah 8 and 9, we come face to face with some timeless truths for our truthless times, okay? Timeless truths for truthless times. You don't have to argue with anybody right now that we live in truthless times. That's just a given. Uh, if you want to argue with me about it, I'd be fine to do that. I just don't think there's any need to argue about it. The times in which we live are truthless. But there are uh, timeless truths that we find in Scripture that are very important, and we see those uh, in in the Isaiah 9 context. Now, to be completely transparent with you, our church family mission, uh, along with the church family which we share a building with, like you all do, uh, Morningstar Community Church, uh, we've been walking through five weeks in this text. So we spent time looking at Jesus as King of Kings, then Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, and just this morning we finished with uh, Prince of Peace. So had you been in this series, you would have realized some of these timeless truths for our truthless times, and they go something like this. We can all come to the same conclusion that we've got a problem, okay? You don't have to live in Houston to know we've got a problem, right? Houston, we have a problem. We may differ on the solution to the problem, but we all agree things are not as God intended. Those things include people, and those people include us, that even we are not as God intended, but beyond that, we all seem to be looking to the wrong people and to the wrong places for solutions to our problems and for answers to our questions. That's just the natural bent of our sinful inclination is we look to the wrong people and the wrong places for solutions to our problems and answers to our questions. But finally, and although this might sound somewhat trite and overly simplified, Jesus is the solution to our problems, and Jesus is the answer to our questions. We could say, really, this, he is the solution, he is the answer, what is your problem, what is your question, okay? 
Uh, that's why we can go to the scriptures. That's why we must go to the scriptures. And that's why our church family has camped out in Isaiah 9. And I'm going to invite you into this as well. You kind of get the, uh, the bang for the buck by doing all of it in one instead of five. Now, I'm not preaching five sermons. I'm just focusing on Prince of Peace, okay? Uh, we don't have five hours tonight. If we did, I guess we could go back and roll the tape and do it. But yes, there we go. Dennis, I said it last week. I'll say it again. Dennis has never failed me. And he... he uh, he, he is not disappointing already today. So there we go. All right. Yes. So let's have a quick look at Isaiah chapter 9, verse 6. Just verse 6. Lucy, thanks for setting the context. But I do want us to focus on verse 6. I want us to kind of review the names that lead up to Prince of Peace. And then I want us to camp out on that name in particular. So in verse 6, we read, To us a child is born, to us a son is given, and the government shall be upon his shoulder. So he is the king of kings. And his name shall be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace. So let's start with king of kings. If Jesus really is our king of kings, uh, because the government is upon his shoulder, that means he is ruling and he is reigning as the captain of our salvation. Like he has gone ahead as king of kings, and he is the captain of our salvation. But more than that, he is also our wonderful counselor. So he is the, a wonder of a counselor. He's not like a divine psychotherapist, go lay on his leather couch, and he's going to make you feel good about yourself and rub your belly and tell you everything's going to be okay. That's not, that's not the kind of counselor that we're talking about. We're talking about a, a wonder of a war strategist. That Jesus is not just the king of kings who's the captain of our salvation, but he actually devises the war strategy to defeat our enemies of Satan, sin, and death that we cannot defeat on our own. Beyond that, he is our mighty God. We're all looking for heroes, and yet he is the ultimate God hero. He is not just the one who is king of kings and wonderful counselor drawing up the war strategy. He comes as mighty God to enact the very strategy that he has drawn up. He is also our everlasting father. He's leading us forever. He's loving us like a father. Each of these names tells of his person, who he is, and his work, what he does. Uh, they all speak to who he wants to be for us, but they also all speak to who he wants to be in us. And where we're setting up camp today, Jesus is our Prince of Peace. And yet, he, here's where we must begin. We all tend toward a wrong picture of peace. We all tend that way. Meaning, we all tend toward the wrong picture of what peace is, and we all tend toward the wrong picture of where peace is found. What it is and where it's found, we all tend to be wrong here. Uh, in fact, I was thinking this week about a book titled The Road Less Traveled by M. Scott Peck. And uh, I was thinking of that because the first three words of his 324-page book begin this way, quote, life is difficult. Now, I can save you the money of buying the book, and I can save you the time of reading it by just telling you these first three words summarize the entire thing. Life is difficult. And then he says, once you know that life is difficult, and once you accept the fact that life is difficult, then life's no longer difficult. Because our greatest problem is to demand that life be a certain way that life fit our expectations. Now, isn't this ironic that this time of year that we're walking through right now 
tends to be the most stressful of times. Uh, total transparency, I've got a canker sore in the back left side of my mouth where my, my uh, upper uh, molar just keeps rubbing against. And so I'm like, curiosity, Google, you know, because Google does it and knows everything. Where do canker sores come from? Number one thing, stress, all right? It's like, well, thank you. Thank you very much. That's very helpful. And it doesn't help at all because gargling peroxide and using Orogel just isn't seeming to cut, cut it, all right? Uh, but is it not true that this time of year can be the most stressful? Think over the last month in your own life. You've probably eaten too much. You've probably spent too much. Your family's dysfunction has bubbled to the surface yet again. We're emotionally on edge. We get into more disagreements and fights because we're around one another uh, for more extended periods of time than usual, not to mention those of us who are isolated or quarantined or sick at home for days or weeks on end, right? Hello, everybody who's gathered with us online today. Since we have a wrong picture of peace, both what it is and where it's found, we tend to pray that God would get us out of things rather than through them. Our prayers tend to sound like, oh God, if I could just have blank, you fill in the blank with a person, thing, or circumstance, oh God, if I could just have this out of my life, then I could have peace. Instead of, God, you know Life is difficult. You know all things, and so you know that life is difficult. I ask you not to get me out, but to get me through. And in the process, make me more like Jesus. See, God making someone or something come or go is not the basis of peace. Now, praying for something to get better or praying for someone to be changed isn't wrong in and of itself. But it is wrong when we attach our sense of peace to that something or that someone and we say in our mind or with our lips, I can only have peace when, fill in the blank, this person, place, or thing. I can only have peace when blank comes in or I can only have peace when blank goes out. Now, we would be wise to start with if we tend toward a wrong picture of what peace is and where peace is found. I think a good and right picture of peace will help us with this. And so here's one of the best illustrations of peace that I think I've ever seen, and I'm hopeful we have a picture of it, yes? Can we see this? It might be a little washed out, a little grainy, but I'm gonna walk us through this. This picture is a painting called Peace in the Midst of the Storm by a man named Jack E. Dawson. One of the best illustrations of peace that I, that I think I've ever seen because I want you to see what's not in this painting. There are not green meadows and bubbling brooks. There are not grazing deer and a glassy smooth lake. There is not a snow-capped mountain background and a boat floating gently in the foreground. There are not clear blue skies and calm, puffy clouds. There's none of that. In fact, I tell people all the time, if you think walking with Jesus is licking on lollipops, skipping through daisy fields, and drinking non-fat soy lattes, you've got it wrong. That's just not how walking with Jesus goes. Uh, a man named Eric Mason would say it like this. Um, the difference between people who are walking with Jesus and not walking with Jesus isn't that people who walk with Jesus don't have a mess. It's that people who walk with Jesus have help with their mess. That's the difference, friends. So look at this painting again. And I want you to see the fact that it's a fierce storm. Up in the top left corner, you can almost hear that lightning if you can see it well. Uh, you can see the dark rolling thunderclouds coming in on the horizon. 
You can see the trees swaying and the gale force winds and the raging river that's totally out of control. And yet, tucked into a cleft in the rock, right in the very middle of this painting that you probably can't even see, so I've highlighted it for you here, is a mother bird who is perched in her nest, resting peacefully on her chicks. And that's why this picture is titled, Peace in the Midst of the Storm. Friends, that is the right picture of peace. Peace in the midst of the storm. And yet, isn't it true that most of us don't know what peace is or where peace is found? And so we must ground ourselves in what the Bible really teaches about peace, about what peace really is, and about where peace really is found. And it all starts with, you're never going to believe this, it all starts with where we fix our eyes, where we fix our eyes. So with eyes fixed on the scriptures, let's begin not with Isaiah 9-2, but scroll back with me to Isaiah 8, 22, actually 21, and let's look there together. God's people, we're reading in this text, that God's people in verse 21 will pass through the land greatly distressed and hungry. This, in other terms, is hangry right? When hungry and angry combine, you get hangry, and that's what God's people are. They're greatly distressed and hungry. And when they're hungry, Isaiah says, they'll be enraged and will speak contemptuously against both their king and their God. And they'll briefly, look at this, they'll briefly turn their faces upward. But just as briefly as they've turned their faces upward, we read in verse 22, and then they will look to the earth. So in their distress and hunger and rage and speaking against their king and God, they briefly look upward, but then again, notice, they look back down to the earth because like us, they have a wrong picture of peace, what peace is and where peace is found. They're looking to the wrong people and they're looking to the wrong places for peace. In fact, this text in Isaiah 8 verses 21 and 22 echo what God says, speaking to the same people, the children of Israel, in Jeremiah chapter 2, verse 13. You might just make a note of this verse, and I believe it'll be up here for you. This is God speaking to the very same people, and he says, my people have committed two evils. Evil number one, they've forsaken me, the fountain of living waters, and evil number two, they've hewed or carved out cisterns for themselves, broken cisterns that can hold no water. If we were to read this today or hear the Lord God speaking this to us today, it would sound like this. Oh, my dear people of Redeemer Community Church, you're committing two sins against me. Number one, you've turned away from me. I am the fountain of living waters. And two, in place of me, you create your own holding tanks for living water, but your containers have holes in them so they don't hold the living water as they should. Listen, where you fix your eyes really and truly matters. Where you fix your eyes really and truly matters. Are you looking to the earth and the things of this earth to, tr to find peace? If you are, hear me today. Hear this timeless truth for truthless times. You will never, ever find peace by looking to the people and things and circumstances of this 
earth. Let's take a lesson from God's people who did it over and over and over again and failed over and over and over again, looking to the earth. Friends, this is why Jesus' words in John 16, are some of my favorites, because Jesus can't make it any more clear for us. Look in John 16, I believe this will be here for you as well. Jesus says, and I quote, I have said these things to you that in me you may have peace, because in the world, or looking to the earth, you will have tribulation. You will have trial. You will have trouble. You will have uh, tragedy. But he says, take heart, for that very same earth that you are tempted to look at is the very same world that I have overcome. Take heart, I have overcome the world. See, peace is found in the person and work of Jesus. Uh, to draw back to that painting I showed you, Jesus is our nest. Jesus is our resting place when chaos and confusion are all around us. And the word tribulation here actually means pressure or to be squeezed. And if we're honest and we're open and we're transparent and we're vulnerable in this moment with one another, this is what most of us feel most of the time, if not right now. We feel the pressured squeeze of family and friends and finances and health and school and work, and we tend to pray for all of it to just go away. But remember, life is difficult. So it's in the midst of the pressured squeeze that we find his peace, and that's what makes peace in the midst of the storm a miraculous grace. Peace in the midst of the storm is a miraculous grace and a kindness of our Prince of Peace who finds us at our worst and comforts us right there. And this is why in following Jesus, we must be looking to Jesus. Hebrews 12.2 here. Hebrews 12.2 says, looking to Jesus. Because Jesus is the maker of heaven and earth. Why would we look to the earth, the created things, when we could look to the creator, the one who created it all? right? Where we fix our eyes so matters. Looking to Jesus. Why? Because Jesus is the founder and the perfecter of our faith. And so this turning of our eyes is an intentional, proactive, taking our eyes off of whatever we're focused on, whoever we're focused on, and turning our eyes, again, intentionally and proactively. This does not happen naturally for us. This is an intentional, proactive turning of our eyes upon Jesus, looking to Jesus as our Prince of Peace, which brings us to today's timeless truth, in truthless times. Sometimes I like to just use an equation, so that's what we're going to do here tonight. This timeless truth for truthless times goes like this. Peace with God equals the peace of God. Peace with God equals the peace of God. Now, in case any of you are wondering, I think with and of in those little uh, phrases are prepositions. I hated English growing up, and God has a great sense of humor, right? I hated breaking down sentences and parsing words and doing all that junk, because it was junk then, all right? And it's still, in my heart of hearts, is junk, all right? 
But those prepositions, you know what? Words matter because words have power and they have meaning. And those prepositions really matter and the order of them really matters. So we're going to spend some time camped out here on peace with God being the peace of God. Uh, For example, Romans chapter 5 verse 1 says, Since we've been justified by faith, that means to be made right with God or to be saved from sin's penalty. Since we've been uh, justified by faith, we have peace with God through getting up earlier, staying up later, trying harder, doing more, being a good person. No, like we have been justified by faith. We have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. Peace with God. The Bible speaks of it uh, being born again or having a born again experience. And what a thrill it would be for you as you are gathered here this late afternoon, early evening to say, hey, I've actually been thinking some about this, and I may be here in this church building, but I'm not really sure that I have a real relationship with the real Jesus, that I've responded to his grace and opened up my life and received him. Now, I'm telling you, you could do this today, and you can have peace with God, because peace with God is not predicated upon you uh, thinking, saying, and doing all the right things and getting yourself all cleaned up and tidy before you can receive Jesus. In fact, you receive Jesus and he gets to work on all the stuff that you could never do for yourself. Uh, Philippians 4, 6 then comes on the heels of this and we read, don't be anxious about anything, but in everything by prayer and supplication with thanksgiving, let your requests be made known to God. And then we read in verse 7, the peace of God which surpasses all understanding, will guard your hearts and your minds in Christ Jesus. So Romans 5.1, we have peace with God through Jesus and his salvation, through the experience of being born again by the Holy Spirit of God. And then Philippians 4, 6 and 7, we have the peace of God. And do you see the importance of the order here? Peace with God, then peace of God. So there's kind of two timeless truths that you and I must believe about about peace. And what I want you to understand here for a moment is because you are created in God's image and likeness with dignity and value and worth, you have a longing for the peace of God that you may not even be able to articulate or describe. It's an innate built-in desire that God has given you. You may describe it differently. You may articulate it differently. But the fact of the matter is because you're an image bearer of God, you have this innately woven into your fabric. You have a desire for peace, the peace of God. The problem is we tend to want to get there by a different kind of means. And so these two timeless truths that you must believe about peace are this. First, you will not have the peace of God unless or until you have peace with God. You must first receive, by God's grace, the invitation that he gives to us. I love Matthew 11, 28 to 30. I love that Dane Ortland wrote Gentle and Lowly. I love that we will forever be indebted both to Jesus for his words and Dane Ortland for building upon them, right? Um, Come to me, all you who are weary and heavy laden, and I will give you rest. We're talking about rest for our souls, peace for our souls. And listen, as much as that is an imperative or a command, come to me, My goodness, is it not also an invitation or a call to us, right? 
that in me you may have peace, he says in John 16, again, because in the world you will have only tribulation. This second truth, though, is that peace is not the result of adding or subtracting anyone or anything to or from your life. Peace is not about adding this person or thing or circumstance. Peace is not about subtracting this person or thing or circumstance from our lives. Instead, peace is all about the fruit of experiencing the presence of Jesus, the Prince of Peace, right in the midst of all that chaos and all of that confusion. So I might ask you, who is this King Jesus, this King of Kings, this wonderful counselor, this mighty God, this everlasting Father, this Prince of Peace? Who is he? Back in 1926, a man named Dr. James Allen Francis, this is 95 years ago, in 1926, he tried to pull this all together by writing a piece entitled One Solitary Life, where he tries to describe in words the effect that Jesus, again, King of Kings, Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace, that the effect that Jesus has had on the world. And so here's what he writes, and I think you'll be able to follow with me as I read it. A child is born in an obscure village. He is brought up in another obscure village. He works in a carpenter shop until he is 30, and then for three brief years is an itinerant preacher, proclaiming a message and living a life. This Jesus never writes a book, never holds an office, never raises an army, never has a family of his own, He never owns a home. Uh, Today, we would say that he's a loser, right? Because he didn't do anything that his parents would have wanted him to do, okay? On top of that, he never goes to college. Now, kids, if you're in that age range and you're trying to argue with your parents because Jesus didn't go to college, I'm not encouraging that. I'm I'm just reading what this guy wrote 95 years ago, okay? He never goes to college. He never travels 200 miles from the place where he's born. He gathers a little group of friends about him and teaches them his way of life. While still a young man, the tide of popular feeling turns against him. The band of followers forsakes him. One denies him. Another betrays him. He is turned over to his enemies. He goes through the mockery of a trial. He's nailed on a cross between two thieves. And when dead, is laid in a borrowed grave by the kindness of a friend. Those are the facts of his human life. Now, we could put a period there and stop, but praise God, we know the rest of the story, and it doesn't end there. So Dr. James Allen Francis goes on to say, he rises from the dead. Today, we look back across now 2,000 years and ask, what kind of a trail has he left across the centuries? When we try to sum up his influence, all the armies that ever marched, all the parliaments that ever sat, all the kings that ever reigned, are absolutely worthless in their influence on mankind compared with that of this one solitary life. Now, why do I share that today? It's because the world is basically looking for peace by getting rid of certain things. The world would say, well, if we could just get rid of disease, get rid of hunger, get rid of poverty, get rid of sex trafficking, get rid of war, if we can just get rid of all this suffering, then we could have peace. But the one thing they're missing, by the way, this one thing is everything, the one thing they're missing is Jesus, the Prince of Peace. 
And, and I know that it's easy for us. Like, we can almost get a little bit, um, like, mm, grumpy about all Grumpy is probably the appropriate word to use. I could use other words, but I wouldn't be happy about it after the fact. So I'll just say grumpy. We can get grumpy about seeing that in the world and forget to turn around and see it in our own hearts and lives. So let me turn this on us for a second, that even on a more personal level, we tend to say, think, and feel things like, well, if my spouse would just love me, fill in the blank. If my kids would just listen to me, fill in the blank. If I could get financial stability, if I could get my health, if my boss would appreciate me, if my teacher would give me an A, if I could get more playing time, then... I could have peace. So see the the conflict here? On the one hand, we're asking God to subtract things out of our lives, like God get rid of disease and hunger and poverty and sex trafficking and suffering and war, and then I could have peace, subtracting things. And then on the other hand, we have the audacity to ask God to add things to our lives, like give me financial stability, give me health, give me good relationships, give me a good work situation, a good school situation. Now, hear me, because, okay, the gospel should offend us, but not uh, unnecessarily so, okay? So I am not saying that I think it's inappropriate for us to pray for some of those things. But I am saying that I, I know that I know that I know it is inappropriate for you and I to attach our peace to those things, Because peace is not the result of adding or subtracting anyone or anything to or from my life. Peace is the fruit of experiencing the presence of Jesus, the Prince of Peace, right in the midst of that chaos, right in the midst of that conflict, right in the midst of that confusion. Both last night and this morning as I was reviewing these notes, I think the Holy Spirit, I don't believe anything I write is inspired, so in case there was any confusion there. But there was this one sentence that just jumped out at me, and this is it. So I might have to say it a couple times in case you want to jot it down, and this may not strike you like it did me. Sometimes I write things and reread them and I think, did I really write that? How in the world could that strike me the way it is right now? We must learn to have peace in the midst of, of what isn't the way we want. Say that again. We must learn to have peace in the midst of what isn't the way we want. We must learn to have peace in the midst of what isn't the way we want. Now, if I was really on it, I'd have all of you say that with me, but I'm not going to do that, all right? Here's what I'm realizing about that and what struck me as I was reviewing this both last night and this morning. Even though many of us in this room, I know all the kiddos are with us today, and that's great. We love that, right? Big family-style gathering. But those of us who inhabit adult-sized bodies, sometimes we still throw uh, uh, childlike temper tantrums when we don't get things our own way, right? And that struck me today. Maybe it's because that's happening in my own heart and mind. I don't know. Uh, But I certainly would guess that in a room this size, there's somebody here who needs to hear this that you have got to, got to, got to learn how to have peace in the midst of what isn't the way you want. And peace really means shalom, a total wholeness all the way around, which you can have in Jesus in the midst, again, of chaos and conflict and confusion. The chaos and conflict and confusion don't have to be removed for you and I to have peace. 
It's communing with Jesus. It's having regular times alone with God and in his word and in prayer and in confession and worship, hearing from him so that when he speaks to us and encourages us with his presence, we can actually be still and hear from him and we can receive his perspective and we can be reminded of his plans and reminded of his promises and reminded of his purposes. Now, I know that can sound very... um, very open-ended and too general. So let me share with you for just a moment what this looks like in my life. For many years now, I've been carrying with me uh, Psalm 112, verse 7, in my heart, in my mind, in my soul, sometimes even in my pocket as a reminder. And I pray and I ask the Lord to help me not play the what-if games. Now, some of you are experts at the what-if games. You just don't know them like I know them, so let me explain it, and then I'll have most of you on board with me. The what-if games is not something that you go to to the store and buy as a a family game to play, you know, a board game. The what-if games happen in your mind and in your heart. And if you're anything like me, you grew up reading choose-your-own-ending books, right, where you read a few pages, and then you get to the end of this section, and it says... Uh, you know, if you think this and this should happen, turn to this page. If you think this and this should happen, turn to that page. The cool part about those books is you don't have to read the whole book, right? That's really cool, all right? I also hated reading as a kid. Again, God has a sense of humor because now I do it all the time. Psalm 112 verse 7 keeps me from playing the what-if games because the what-if games in my heart and mind are like the choose-your-own-ending books that I read as a child, except all of them end with me uh, driving off a cliff to my fiery death. That's what happens when I play the what-if games. Now, if you can't relate to that, then uh, good on you. But that's not how my mind and heart work. When I play the what-if games between me and the Lord, they all end with me driving off a cliff to my fiery death. And so I need a verse like Psalm 112.7. And in fact, I need it in a translation like the Living Bible. And all God's people went, what? Yes, we can actually read from things that are not the English Standard Version, okay? I love it. I read it. I I preach from it and teach from it. Man, I love to see uh, how this may have been translated or interpreted in other places. Here is how it's read in the Living Bible. He does not fear bad news nor live in dread of what may happen. For he has settled in his mind that the Lord will take care of him. Now listen, one of the things I love about the Psalms in particular, or Scripture in general, is our ability to personalize and to turn them into prayer. So I love to take Psalm 112 verse 7 and personalize it in the first person and it sounds like this. I will not fear bad news, nor will I live in dread of what may happen. For I have settled in my mind that the Lord will take care of me. I love to personalize that. But beyond that, I love to turn it into prayer. And I love to say, Lord, you know that I will tend to fear bad news and that I will tend to live in dread of what may happen. And so, Lord, guard my heart and guard my mind that I might settle in my mind that you will take care of me no matter what. Now listen. That, that's as simple as jotting it down on a, a post-it note and sticking it in your pocket or having it up on your mirror or on your dash or, or somewhere that you're going to be consistently reminded of these kinds of truths. Now, again, before we close, I am not saying that it is wrong to ask God to add something to your life. I am not saying that it is wrong to ask God to subtract something from your life. But what I am saying that is not where you're going to find your peace 
because your peace and my peace as followers of Jesus is to be found in Jesus alone. As he says, again, in me you may have peace. Now I hope and pray uh, you get the chance to see and to share the evidences of these timeless truths and truthless times with one another, especially as it relates to peace. But in the meantime, I, I want to share with you about someone who, if anyone knows about peace with God and peace of God, it's this man named Horatio Spafford. Horatio Spafford. Some of you may know this story well. Others of you haven't heard it at all. So I want to close our time today with this. During the 1860s, Horatio Spafford and his wife Anna lived in Chicago, of all places. He was a successful lawyer investing in property along Lake Michigan. He was an elder in his church family. Uh, they're very generous Christians. Their home was always open. They were friends of Dwight L. Moody. Uh, they were involved in the abolition of slavery. They housed the homeless. They did whatever they could to share whatever they had with the homeless. I would summarize their lives like this. They, they loved to open the Bible to learn Jesus so that they could open their lives to love like Jesus. But in 1870, it all changed. Their son died of scarlet fever at four years of age. One year later, in 1871, the Great Chicago Fire struck the city of Chicago, wiping out all of Horatio's real estate investments along Lake Michigan. Two years later, in 1873, his wife became ill, and at that time, they began to discuss together as a family, his wife and their four daughters, what they may need to do to put some distance between the death of their son and the financial disaster that had struck. But even still, they continued to give and to serve both the needy and their church family in Chicago. But eventually, uh, the day and time were set, November 22, 1873, they were set to get on a steamer and head for Europe for a time of extended family vacation. But God had other plans. Something came up, and Horatio stayed in Chicago. He put his wife and his four daughters on that steamer headed for Europe, and somewhere out over the Atlantic, the steamer collided with a ship and sunk in 12 minutes. There were 370 passengers, and only 81 survived. One of them was Anna Spafford, his wife. But the four daughters all drowned. And remember, this is 1873, so there's no airplanes, there's no telephones, there's no way to send communication quickly. So once Anna uh, was able, she telegraphs Horatio these words, Saved alone, what shall I do? Now, I know that we weren't there, and I know that a storytelling, you know, like, is he trying to tug at my heartstrings? And it, not, not really. I'm just trying to help you remember that peace is not the result of adding or subtracting anyone or anything to or from our life. Peace is the fruit of experiencing the presence of Jesus, the Prince of Peace. So can you imagine this for a moment? Some of you can imagine this because this isn't too far from your life circumstances. Others of us kind of need a wake-up call, right? But imagine this. No son, no daughters, a sick wife on the other side of the world, wiped out finances this side of the world. And so Horatio boards a ship, sails for Europe to bring his sick wife home. And somewhere out over the Atlantic, the captain calls to him in his quarters and says, Sir, as best we can tell, we are now over the very spot where the steamer sunk 
three miles deep. Horatio went down by himself to his cabin, grieving all that he has lost, and he pens a hymn that the church has now sung for generations. And before I read this hymn, you must picture Horatio down in the bowels of this ship somewhere out over the Atlantic, down in his cabin, reflecting over the last several years. Because if there was ever a time that Horatio Spafford could have become angry, could have become bitter, maybe even suicidal, this would have been the time for sure. But because Horatio Spafford, like many of you already do, and I hope that all of us do in time, if not tonight, because Horatio Spafford knew that he knew that he knew that peace is not the result of adding or subtracting anything or anyone to or from his life, and because Horatio Spafford knew that peace is the fruit of experiencing the presence of Jesus Christ, even out over the Atlantic, some three miles above where his four daughters lay in their watery grave, because Horatio Spafford Uh, knew the truths of another place in Isaiah chapter 43 when the Lord says, when you pass through the waters, I will be with you and through the rivers, they shall not overwhelm you for I am the Lord your God, I am the Holy One, I am your Savior. These are the words that Horatio pins that very night. When peace like a river attends my way, when sorrows like sea billows roll, Whatever my lot you have taught me to say, it is well, it is well with my soul. Though Satan should buffet, and oh, does Satan ever ever buffet. And by the way, this is not, I'm not even going to say what I want to say because it's not the time. Buffet. To blow or to strike with the hand or fist, to push against repeatedly, to push against sharply, to concuss or to violently shock. That is Satan over and over and over again. Though Satan should buffet, though trials should come, let this blessed assurance control that Christ has regarded my helpless estate and has shed his own blood for my soul. My sin, oh, the bliss of this glorious thought, my sin, not in part, but the whole, is nailed to the cross and I bear it no more. I bear it no more. Praise the Lord, praise the Lord, O my soul. But Lord, tis for you. For your coming we wait. The sky, not the grave, is our goal. O O trump of the angel, O voice of the Lord, blessed hope, blessed rest of my soul. And Lord, haste the day when my faith shall be sight. The clouds be rolled back as a scroll. The trump shall resound and the Lord shall descend. Even so, it is well, it is well with my soul. And so hear this clearly. We'll pray and we'll respond together. No matter who we elect, no matter how many wars we fight, no matter which laws we pass, no matter which medicines we take, there will never be peace until the Prince of Peace returns. But until then, Jesus draws near to us in our tragedy. Jesus draws near to us in our trial. Jesus draws near to us in our trouble. Jesus draws near to us in our tribulation. For no one feels like Jesus feels. And no one heals how Jesus heals. And no one loves how Jesus loves. And ultimately, no one saves. No one saves like Jesus saves. So I'm going to pray. And then we're going to get on our feet and get to responding 
to who this Jesus is as our Prince of Peace. Father God, thank you for sending Jesus, your one and only Son, and thank you for sending him to us, that we may have peace with you through him and your peace in him. Jesus, I pray that we would both learn and live this timeless truth that peace is not the result of adding or subtracting anyone or anything to or from our lives, but that peace is the fruit of experiencing your presence as our Prince of Peace. Father, we are longing for the day when Jesus returns as our King of Kings. We are longing for the day that Jesus establishes his kingdom of peace that will have no end. But Father, until that time and in the meantime, I pray that you'll have your will and have your way in us as your people, that we will make much of Jesus and that we will be faithful to you in Jesus' good name. Amen. Well, one way that we celebrate this peace with God and the peace of God is through the Lord's Supper. And so I'd like to invite those who are distributing the bread, uh, representing the body of Christ given for us, uh, and the cup representing the, the blood that is shed to take away our sin, I'd invite you to take your places. Um, if you are walking with Jesus, meaning you're turning from your sin and you're trusting him as uh, Prince of Peace, then we would invite you to receive the Lord's Supper as the music plays. Uh, if you're not walking with Jesus, meaning you're not turning from sin, you're not trusting uh, Jesus as Prince of Peace, then we would invite you in these moments ahead to just reflect on these timeless truths that have been shared today. Uh, this is how we find peace with God. This is how we find the peace of God in Jesus' body given, in Jesus' blood shed in our place for our sins, that we might be forgiven and that we might be saved. Why don't you stand and let's begin responding together today.